You are about to hear the most interesting, informative, thought-provoking, opinion-leading, and funny show in America, on air and on the World Wide Web. This is The Rob Carson Show. Happy Thursday, everybody, and I hope everyone had a very Merry Christmas and is looking forward to the new year. I'm Amber Duke, in for Rob Carson today. You may know me formally as Amber Athey, but I recently got married, so I'll be using my married name now. And it's a pleasure to be with you all this afternoon. Uh, I want to get right into this topic that has been really been bugging me for quite a while because I, no one is really talking about it. It's actually trending on TikTok of all places, and I don't even have a TikTok, so if it's made its way to me, you know that this conversation is is up and coming. So Generation Alpha is the generation of kids younger than Gen Z, below the millennials, right? So you have Generation Alpha, then Generation Z, and then the millennials in terms of youngest to oldest. And so these are really your your really young toddlers, uh, preteens, basically in that age range. And they're coming up in a time post-pandemic where they weren't in school for a, quite a period of time, depending, of course, in which part of the country they were in. And they're they're on the tail end of really this uh, this me generation that I think started primarily with the millennials. That's my generation, and it's it's the children of millennials, of older millennials that are are now uh, the ones in the elementary schools and the middle schools, and we're starting to see this the effects of the me generation, the selfish generation, trying to raise the people after them, trying to raise their children. And there are a bunch of teachers who are jumping on social media and they are sounding the alarm bells. They say this is the worst generation that they've ever taught, not just in terms of behavioral issues, but in terms of their ability to even learn. They say these kids can't read, they can't write, they have no attention span. They're constantly disrupting class. They're addicted to technology, to the phones, to the computers, to to the tablets. And they're basically at their wits end. And I think it's important to point out that the teachers that are, are doing these videos and talking about the troubles that they're having in their classroom are young teachers. These are not you know, 60-year-old, 50-year-old teachers who say every generation is worse than the last, right? I mean, we have that tendency to say that the generation below us is is worse than we were and the one below them is even worse than that. Just because as we get older, we tend to, I think, be more critical of young people and get further away from what we were like when we were that age. But these are 20-something-year-old teachers who are looking, I think, fairly objectively at the Generation Alpha and saying, something is really wrong with these kids and we don't know what to do about it. And so I wanna play a few of the clips from these TikTok videos so you can hear directly from these teachers the things that they're experiencing in their classrooms with this generation of kids uh, because this is going to be a, a very almost insurmountable challenge as we get to the next five, 10 years and we start seeing these kids eventually become adults and the generation that is supposed to be the nation's leaders. So let's take a listen, uh, let's play cut one. Here's a teacher talking about uh, some of the things that she's seen in her classroom. 
young Gen Z teachers are talking about the poor behavior of Gen Alpha students, and some of y'all are finally starting to believe us when it comes to how much we've missed the mark on raising these kids right. Because I have gray in my hair and I'm 36 years old, people tend to tune me out as soon as I open my mouth when I start talking about these issues we're seeing in the classroom with our kids these days. So before I go on, why don't we review some of the evidence from some of the other creators on this app who might be a little bit more of a relatable age. This is my folder of crying teachers, and they are confused and frightened by the behavior of Gen Alpha. They're saying Gen Alpha is defiant, aggressive, disrespectful, and rude. Having to teach and work with you guys as children has been the most traumatic experience of my life. They don't respect any authority. You ask them, can you stand in your designated spot? They're telling you no and shut up. They're throwing things at each other. They're throwing things at other people, other classmates. You say, can everybody sit in their spot? I don't want to. I'm not doing that. You don't get to tell me what to do. You're not my mom. Like, I'm not even trying to be funny, but these kids are... I'm going to just say this. I teach seventh grade. They are still performing on the fourth grade level. I'm a middle school teacher. I'm also 22 years old. And I will tell you, by far we are doomed like these kids do not care like i have kids all they want to do all day long is get high like i need to ask millennials um why are your kids so awful and more importantly why do you think it's so funny your kids cannot read they cannot write they are ill-mannered i think let's start with the obvious here when when we're listening to some of the things that they're experiencing which is they're all describing this sort of insolent behavior that is resistant to authority to the point that they can't basically run a classroom um and and i'm not the type of person either that would say that a kid reflexively has to follow all authority um especially as a as a conservative growing up um i definitely was was always interested in challenging some of my teachers because i thought that the things that they were trying to teach us were not accurate or, or not right or not values based and so i would never just say kids you have to always listen to the authority figure even if they're steering you in the wrong direction but the problem here is twofold. You have to listen to authority, obviously, to a certain extent, just to behave, just to have a structured classroom where all the kids have the same opportunity to learn without disruption, right? That's a separate question than just blindly following uh, what somebody is teaching you. But at the very least, you have to respect that person who is in that leadership position so that everybody in this environment can learn. Um, but then secondly, even if you accept uh, the idea that that a child could, again, question ideas that an authority figure is telling them that don't quite sit right with them, that requires them to have a basic value system that has been instilled in them by the parents. And millennials, I think as parents, have really punted on that question. They believe that they can raise their kids in a value neutral manner. You hear this repeatedly. I hear it from people in my generation, whether it's on social media or even, you know, friends of mine where they'll talk about how traumatized they were by the way that they were raised by their parents, whether it was because they went to Catholic school or were taught religious values or um, were had parents that were strict disciplinarians. And so they went so far in the opposite direction with their kids that they didn't teach them any values at all. Their kids, they, they expected that their kids 
were mature mature enough at, at a toddler level or at a middle school level to be able to figure out those values on their own. And instead, those kids ran the show. They were never faced any consequences for their actions. They were never taught right from wrong. And they get older, and it's too late at that point to really fix that problem. Once you get through a certain growth stage with a child, you can't reverse the effects of failing to instill in them proper values. So you have schools full of children who have never been disciplined by their parents, who have never understood what right and what wrong is. And so when a teacher is suddenly telling them, hey, you have to listen to me because I'm in charge in this classroom, they don't even listen to their parents. So why on earth would they listen to this stranger, this teacher, that is telling them what to do. And beyond this behavioral problem, there's the education problem, which we heard in that clip as well from from the the idea that the kids can't read, they can't write, they, they can't do basic tasks, um, they can't do research for themselves. Everything, of course, is a click away on the phone now. And there's a couple of other teachers in Cut 2, which we're going to play right now, that talk a little bit more about this educational problem. They have no background knowledge. Most of them don't know who the president is. Um, you know, they, they're coming to school with no background knowledge. They have very low skills. And yes, part of my job is to help them find those skills. And as a special education teacher, like I'm obviously going to be working with students who require specialized instruction, but I'm not talking about specifically my students. I'm talking about students in the grade period. And this was the case last year. They can't take notes. They can't even attend to a video. They can't even attend to a three-minute video clip. I can play it. I can tell them what it's going to be about. I can summarize what the video did, and not a single one can tell me what the video was about. Okay, so what happens when you neglect to raise your kids and instead you outsource parenting to phones and computers? They, one, learn everything, and learn is used very loosely here, on social media. And specifically, the young people are on TikTok, which is a Chinese-controlled app. If you look at the difference between what is on TikTok in the United States and in China, it becomes very obvious that this is a Chinese psyop used to brainwash children into believing all kinds of harmful and divisive ideologies that are not good for our country and certainly not good for the children. So you outsource your parenting to TikTok, which is a Chinese psyop, and a side effect of the kids constantly being on technology all day, constantly being on the phones, constantly being on the computer, is they are addicted to short form content that gives them an instant dopamine rush. So why can't a kid pay attention to a three minute video? Because every video that they watch is only 30 seconds or less. So it's impossible for them to watch anything longer than that. I mean, if you see some kids out there I don't know if you have family members who are raising children who have the phones at a young age. Try having them sit through a movie. It, it's, it's unbelievable to see the way that some kids are interacting with media these days. Um, and the, the teachers go on to say, you know, they, they really can't, they can't read, they can't write. There is a one individual who responded to these video clips on X saying that they had someone applying for a sales job and they spelled salesman as salmon, um, really stuff that's beyond parody. And I think it's important for us to question what we can change 
Um, if you're someone who's planning on becoming a parent soon, if you're a young parent or maybe you're a grandparent and you're worried about this, what can we do differently? What did we do wrong beyond millennials being horrible parents, which I think is true. I mean, we, I've just talked about this, but beyond that, I think there's other societal things that are going on here. This is a generation of kids that is actually the most educated from a definitional standpoint in probably all of American history. When they get to be one year old, they go to daycare, then they go to pre-K, and then they're in kindergarten, and they're in school a lot, with the exception of the learning loss during the pandemic. But from a very young age, they were in educational programs. Now, not all daycare is educational, but a lot of it tries to sort of have a school-like environment. So why, even though these kids are technically in school from the time they're one year old, do they not have any of these basic educational skills? And maybe that should cause us to question the reflexive idea that is accepted by a lot of parents nowadays, that you have a two-income household. As soon as the woman gets through her maternity leave, she goes back to work, she puts her kid in daycare, and then the kid is in the system, essentially, from the time they are one year old. Clearly, that's not working. Clearly, there is something happening to a kid when they are not at home enough to get that proper love, care, and instruction from their parents, from the first authority figure in their life. And so they're in the system, and they're crying out for attention because they are in a situation where they have one carer in charge of 10 to 15 other kids. What kind of effect does that have on a child's psyche? There's so many other factors involved here from over-medication and in general, the idea that when kids act like kids, there's something wrong with them. The ideology being taught to kids that the world is happening to them as opposed to them happening to the world. They are just passive recipients of everything around them, which makes them a perpetual victim. They're never supposed to have any challenges in their life. The parents can't stand to see their kid frustrated, sad, angry, upset. And so they try to coddle them from all of those emotions and they never learn how to emotionally regulate. And let's be honest, the teachers bear some blame here too. You heard some of those people in those clips. Did those sound like the intelligent, wise, mature people that you would want teaching your kids? Let's look at this and keep an eye on this and start thinking critically about the way that we're raising our kids in this country and what we can do differently with the individuals left in this generation that can still be saved and with the next generation to ensure we can get back to a smart, mature, well-regulated, values-based generation that can actually lead our country to a better place as opposed to passing kids through school that have no idea what's going on, are ill-mannered, poorly behaved, and are doing nothing to add value to our society. We're going to take a quick break. I'm Amber Duke in for Rob Carson on The Rob Carson Show.
Welcome back to The Rob Carson Show. I'm Amber Duke in for Rob today. We have an amazing guest coming up, by the way, at 1235. My friend Julio Rosas, he's an independent journalist, formerly with Town Hall. He covers the border, riots, protests, all of the unrest going on across the country. We'll check in with him on the migrant crisis, as well as some of those pro-Palestinian protests that saw airports blocked like LAX and JFK over the holiday, over the Christmas holiday. So 1235 Julio Rosas. There's a video clip making the rounds on social media, on X in particular, that shows a bunch of 14-year-old Welsh girls talking about how wonderful it would be for migrant men to move to the country uh, in using these little girls to encourage migrants to move to Wales. And of course, unfortunately, a lot of these Migrants are responsible for the rise in sexual assault, violent crime, terrorism that's taking place across Europe. So one has to ask, why on earth are little girls being used for such an advertisement? Let's go ahead and take a a listen to this ad. Uh, We have this on cut four. Wales is seen as a nation of sanctuary. We welcome anyone and everyone. We recognize your skills and talent. The Welsh Refugee Council offers a lot of support, including ESOL classes, which means English for speakers for other languages. It may be hard to learn our language, so we offer support. Employment. You may feel stressed about employment, but we can help. They help you to apply for bank accounts, child benefits, and they can help with housing. It's very important to have a warm place that you can call home. Education. Children have the right to education. Play for children. We know how important it is for children to socialize. Help finding doctors. It's extremely important to have health care. Not only this, but Wales offers free education and health care. There are many job opportunities here in Wales. IKEA works closely with the Welsh Refugee Council, providing jobs for refugees that come from all over the world. On the screen now are some basic Welsh phrases. Shemai. Hello. Borda. Good morning. Prenanda. Good afternoon. Nosta. Good night. Sitoiti. How are you? We understand that you have been through a lot, and that is why the Welsh Refugee Council is here to help you. Thank you for listening. This advertisement is paid for by an NGO called the Welsh Refugee Council, and this NGO receives funding from in addition to private companies, the Welsh government. So the Welsh taxpayers are, are paying for the privilege of their children being used as as in, enticers for, for refugees and migrants to come to their homeland. You have, uh, again, these refugees are responsible for a significant number of sexual assault that's been taking place across Europe. They uh, are, are coming into these countries at a time when European citizens are having a difficult time making ends meet, finding housing. There were recently uh, a bunch of riots in, in Dublin, Ireland, because a uh, an immigrant committed a terror attack. And when the Irish people uh, complained about this, they were silenced, they were threatened with jail time for sharing their opinions with investigation into their speech. And they uh, rightfully pointed out that these immigrants who were going on to commit violent crime in their home countries are getting free housing from their governments while they're struggling to pay their rent. Um, To use a 14-year-old girl to encourage more of these migrants to come into Wales is, is rather unbelievable.
You're listening to The Rob Carson Show. I'm Amber Duke. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hey guys, it's Carson. Christmas just passed, but I have a really great gift idea. You can still give yourself. Why don't you give yourself the new streaming service, Newsmax Plus? Move over Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu. Just start Newsmax Plus. I subscribed. I love it. Get Newsmax Best Shows with Rob Schmidt, Eric Boulding, Greta Van Susteren, Greg Kelly, and more. You also get lots of movies, documentaries, history, comedy. Newsmax Plus just signed up more than 180,000 people. Newsmax Plus lets you watch the Newsmax channel on your phone or home TV app. And Newsmax Plus is the only streamer to give you all the Donald Trump rallies. Fox News censors most of them. So get Newsmax Plus today. It's free to start. Just go to NewsmaxPlus.com. That's Newsmax, spell the plus, dot com. Start your free subscription again. NewsmaxPlus.com. That's NewsmaxPlus.com. Millions are switching to Newsmax. So try it free today. Welcome back to The Rob Carson Show. I'm Amber Duke, in for Rob today. There is a massive migrant caravan heading to the southern border. What else is new? Honestly, about 7,500 people from 24 different countries are believed to be a part of this group making its way through the Mexican state of Chiapas. On the line, we have Julio Rosas. He is the author of Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, The 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America, and also is the writer for his Substack, Mostly Peaceful. Julio, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. Do we have Julio on the line? I don't, I can't hear him. Julio, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Oh, yep, I can hear you now. Perfect. Okay, so let me ask you about this migrant caravan. This is one of many that have made its way to the U.S. southern border in the past few years. These have become apparently quite the the popular thing. But this one is taking place as Antony Blinken is preparing for a trip to Mexico. How is this going to complicate his meeting with the Mexican president? I mean, it's not going to really matter because remember what you have to keep in mind with the Biden administration's approach to this entire mess that they created is that they're, they're not about deterrence. They're, they're all about just getting people in, process them, and then release them into the country. So Really, it's the, the Mexican government has all the power in this, and, and, and they know it because when you look at what Trump administration did, whenever you know the one or two caravans that happened during his entire administration was uh, the Trump administration pressured the Mexican government to say, "Hey, they're coming through your country. You guys need to take responsibility to stop them." Um, and so, obviously, because Mexico knew that they they were serious back then, they actually took steps to mit- to mitigate the illegal crossings. But obviously, things are, are very different now, and they have no incentive. Uh, the Mexican government has no incentive to, to change. Yeah, I mean, to exactly to your point, they had basically made a deal with the Mexican government, uh, the Trump administration that has made a deal with the Mexican government, wherein they had to provide their own National Guards troops to go to their side of the border to help prevent these people from crossing. Otherwise, there would be consequences. 
in terms of, of federal funding and things like that. The Biden administration nixed that entire agreement on probably his first 100 days in office, if, if not less. Right. And I, I've always I've always said that the, the border crisis has been Biden's first crisis. And, you know, there's many, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. But it, it, it's just that this is a this is a classic, you know, taking a long standing problem because the border has been an issue for a long time. Is taking a long-standing problem or issue and then making it sometimes worse. And right now, I can tell you that uh, the southern border is the worst I've ever seen it during during this entire time, and that's saying something, right? I mean, this we're we're, we're only a few months into the new fiscal year, which starts on October first, and we're already seeing uh, a million encounters, close to it. And those are just the encounters of mainly people who want to be caught. That does not include people who don't want to be caught, who have had a much easier time avoiding. Uh, Border Patrol, since they are too busy uh, handling people who do want to be caught. So it, it's it's just a perfect storm of everything that's been happening and making it just the worst it's ever been. And part of it is because we are heading into election season and people who, uh, you know, they, they might want to say, hey, well, we might lose our, on our chance to enter the country this way if there's a change in administration. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating about this crisis is that this is one that has actually sparked quite a bit of outrage and consternation from the president's own party. So you have the Eagle Pass, Texas mayor, Rolando Salinas, uh, saying that he's received no response from the federal government in regards to this new caravan that's that's set to come. Mayor Eric Adams in New York City has, of course, been vocal on this for quite some time. Now you have the Chicago and Denver mayors chiming in. But as you point out, Julio, these people aren't really asking for a policy change. They're just asking for money to help them deal with the influx of all of these migrants. Right. And and so that's why it's, it's unfortunate that the citizens have to deal with the repercussions of that. But I don't feel bad at all for these Democratic politicians who, I mean, even Eric, Eric Adams, he was campaigning um, about, you know, bragging about being a sanctuary city and they'll always remain a sanctuary city. Um, and so it, it's it's it is significant. I mean, look, it is significant. They are mildly criticizing the Biden administration because, you know, parties typically don't like to do that. Um, but it's it's a too it's a problem too big to ignore, um, and it's going to get worse uh, as more people are coming. And that's why I know it's cliche to say it, but this next election, this next presidential election, is very very important. It's just because as much as Trump did in moving the needle on you know taking concrete action to secure the border, the Democrats have over you know went the other direction and said that well even though Obama and Bill Clinton, even though they did border security, because Trump did so much to secure the border, and that was racist, we have to do the complete opposite. And so that's why the entire Democratic Party now, by and large, is just, you know, whatever has any semblance of securing the border, we're just not going to do that because that's racist, because that's Trump. I mean, it, it's very idiotic. It's very childish. But that's, that's just the way things are right now, unfortunately. Right. And there's so much hypocrisy, too, in that the Obama administration was obviously not shy about using executive power. Now you hear so often from the Democrats, well, this is a Congress issue. Congress needs to fix the immigration system before we do border security. And my reaction to that is, well, we've we've been through this before. This is not our first rodeo. We know exactly what happens if we give you an inch on, on what you want to see, which is probably mass amnesty. And you're promising that you'll give border security later on down the line. I don't think anybody believes that, Julio. Right. And what no one's really talking about right now, uh, this is something I've been trying to raise awareness about, is that we're going to have a whole new generation of DACA. 
And, you know, we're, we haven't even solved the first generation. You know, that, that's still kind of tied up, and that, there's no really clear answer on, on And that was back in the 2010s. And now with this new surge of people bringing in small children and, you know, that are one, two, three, four, five years old, and four or five years later, this is the only country they've ever known. They're probably going to only speak, you know, mainly English. And so they're going to say, well, well, hold on. My mom brought me over in 2021, and this is the only country I've known, so you can't deport me. You can't do this. You can't do that. Um, that's, I mean, and that, that's just one aspect of it, right? That doesn't include the, the economic impacts, the health care burdening that's going to be with us for a very long time. So even if, even if, you know, say Trump wins back the White House next year or DeSantis or whoever, um, it's not going to be an easy fix. Uh, sure, they can do things to secure the border kind of day one, but the, the, the second dirt effects that have been going on for four plus years is is not going to be an overnight thing. And of course, you can bet that the Democrats and immigration groups, they're going to they're going to sue the heck out of whichever administration to prevent kind of deportations and depend, you know, prevent people from being removed who were allowed to come in and be able to go through these proceedings under the Biden administration. Yes, it's very hard to put that genie back in the bottle, so to speak, and it takes a lot of political will to be willing to do mass deportations. And I mean, Trump, to its credit, has has talked about it, but um, even when he was in office the first time around, didn't really do it on a mass scale. In fact, I think he deported fewer people than um, former President Obama did when he was in office. So I want to pivot a little bit to these pro-Palestinian protests that have been taking place across the country. And it's kind of connected to the border because uh, you have this issue of, I think a lot of the individuals who are involved in these protests are immigrants from Arab countries and they have come over here and uh, started to basically import this kind of extreme ideology um, that we're seeing pop up in these protests. It's sort of like the new Black Lives Matter. I know you've been on the ground for some of them and over Christmas Day, they were blocking the entrances to the LAX airport and the JFK airport in New York City. When you went to some of these protests, what what was the energy you were seeing? What was what was really the grievance and then the way that these people were expressing that grievance? Because, again, to me, this looks very similar to what we saw in the summer of 2020 with BLM. Yeah, the, the the parallels are very very evident. Being being there, the the energy, the rage, the motivation is 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 there. I mean, when I when I've been covering these things, it instantly brings it back to all the rights that I covered um, three years ago, going on four years. And that's because you have to think of it from their point of view. To them, there's a quote unquote genocide happening in Gaza, which is not happening. But to that to them, that's what's happening. So. Um, you, you take George Floyd and then you amplify that to a whole race of people, right? So that's going to really motivate uh, the radicals to try to do something about it to prevent that or to, or to you know, bring awareness to it. And when people are blocking traffic or when they're causing riots outside Christmas events, people say, well, what, why are they doing that? They're, you're not going to convince anybody to come over to your side. The thing you have to remember with these people is they're not trying to convince anybody. They're trying to purposefully make life worse because they think that you are the problem. They're not trying mm-hmm. to get you over to their side. They, they, they think that, that that's not going to happen. And so the only solution to that is like, well, we're going to make your lives miserable because you're, you're part of the problem because you're in the United States and you support X, Y, and Z. Um, and so I am a little bit concerned about what's going to happen as we go into election season and as Israel continues to make progress in Gaza and taking out Hamas. Um, these people aren't going to go home if, you know, if and when – 
Israel completely takes out Hamas leadership and, and its ground troops, um, they're going to actually have every incentive to escalate their tactics because now they really have nothing to lose. Because now in their minds, the quote-unquote genocide is, is complete. Um, and so that, that really has a bad kind of recipe for, for things to happen because now you have, domestically, you have an understaffed, underfunded law enforcement. You have political leaders who don't want to make it look like that they're taking action against the far left because then they're racist or whatever. So it, it's, it's um, you know, this, I don't, I'm not saying that's a foregone conclusion that we're going to have riots again, but it, the, my, my personal kind of alarm system is kind of blinking red when it comes to this. Sure. And, and for good reason. I mean, Mayor Eric Adams has said that he is, quote, sure that these pro-Palestinian protesters are going to try to interrupt the New Year's Eve ball drop in Times Square. They have riot police apparently ready to deploy to the area for that event. And um, I think you're exactly right that this is not about convincing people. This is about making people miserable, as you said, and, and disrupting these events that people look forward as tools of unification in society. And a lot of them, of course, based in, in Christian religion. I don't think that's a coincidence. But I think it's also intimidation, right? Uh, the fear of what would happen to you if you were to oppose these people. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, and that's why I understand what conservatives saying, oh, you're like, oh, we shouldn't get involved in Israel and all this stuff. And, and I agree to a certain extent, you know, I'm not saying we should just go <laughs> Star Spangled Banner back into the Middle East. But what you have to keep in mind is that um, they don't, view, the, the radicals on the far left, they don't view it that way. Like, like I said, you, unless you're a full-fledged supporter of Hamas, um, they, they're not going to leave you alone. They're going to get in your face. They're, they're going to do things uh, to you um, even though you might, you know, even if you say, well, I don't support Israel, I don't, you know, I, I, don't, I have no stake in it. Well, it doesn't matter to them. You are, you're either completely on their side or you're not. And so when we combine that with everything else that is going on in terms of, you know, criminals, everyday criminals just having free reign um, in certain, certain parts of the country, uh, you know, that, that is why they're emboldened. And you think that if they get arrested, you think there's going to be anything serious? against them, you think they're going to face serious repercussions? Absolutely not. So they know. The ground troops know that they have the power here. Um, and so, sure, you might be safe if you don't live in one of the big cities, but, you know, places like Kenosha and Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, uh, weren't spared the BLM riots when, when it came to their doorstep. And, you know, that was the last place I thought I'd be in back in 2020. Mm, great point. All right. Julio Rosas, he runs the Mostly Peaceful Substack, and you can check out his book, Fiery But Mostly Peaceful. Thank you so much for joining us on The Rob Carson Show. Yep, thanks for having me, Amber. All right. I'm Amber Duke. We're going to take a quick break. Be back on the other side. You're listening to The Rob Carson Show. I'm Amber Duke. There's a new report out about just how badly the NHS system in the UK was treating children who were suffering with gender dysphoria. This Tavistock Clinic, it's it's an infamous place where children were referred to get transgender treatments. The left calls a gender-affirming care uh, and, and that place was supposed to be shut down. The Tavistock Clinic was supposed to be shut down uh, a year ago, and the UK Health Service has been delaying 
uh, shutting down that clinic, claiming that they have to come up with other trans clinics that are better for kids before they get rid of it because all of these gender dysphoric children need treatment, apparently. It's absolute craziness instead of accepting that what this place was doing to these kids was child abuse and closing it down for good. They're actually trying to create alternatives. But this new report actually reveals the extent to which the Tavistock Clinic was harming children. So this Daily Mail report points out that 382 children under the age of six years old were referred to the Gender Identity Development Service in the Tavistock and Portman Trust. It reveals how even the youngest children had been pushed into into interacting with the controversial clinic and that the numbers being referred to the Gender Identity Development Service had soared in recent years ahead of the proposed shutdown. In fact, the clinic saw 12 three-year-olds referred to it between 2010 and 2020, as well as 61 four-year-olds, 145-year-olds, and 169 six-year-olds. The number of young people, again, had been increasing. There were 136 referrals in 2010 to 2011, and that soared to 3,585 by 2020. So thousands of young children being sent to question their gender identity thanks to the Nationalized Health Service. And this should be a warning to what is happening in the United States. We are, of course, not far behind them, but in many ways, the UK was ahead of its time on the idea of treating kids who suffer from gender dysphoria and also pushing kids into the idea that they might be gender dysphoric because they play with the member of the opposite sex's toy or they like to, they're boys who like to wear dresses or paint their nails or Sadly, in some cases, you have children who have same-sex attraction and their parents decide that they would be better off being a transgender individual rather than being a gay or lesbian individual. And in June of this past year, there was a report released by that same National Health Service that was supposed to shut down the Tavistock Clinic that said they would limit the prescription of puberty-blocking drugs for transgender children solely to clinical trials. That report back in June said, quote, there is not enough evidence to support their safety or clinical effectiveness as a routinely available treatment and that they should only be accessed as part of research. And again, we're still getting uh, more information in terms of the numbers of children who went through these treatments, the parents who say that their kids were permanently mutilated, parents who say their kids were put on puberty blockers or hormone therapy. After just one consultation, this Tavistock clinic um, was not properly mental, going through the mental vetting process, the psychological vetting of these kids to make sure that they were even truly gender dysphoric before they put them on this life-altering, permanent, life-changing medication. Um, it's beyond disturbing. There are a lot of other places in the UK that have actually drawn back on the way that the U.S. and other places treat kids who are suffering from gender dysphoria and have gone back to a wait-and-see approach as opposed to over-medicalizing. Uh, but these numbers, 382 children aged 6 and under being told that they were born in the wrong body and they need medication to fix themselves. We'll be right back with more on The Rob Carson Show.
Hey guys, it's Carson. You know, everybody knows the next medical crisis just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something more mundane like a tick bite, you and your family need to be prepared. That's where the wellness company comes in. The Wellness Company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust, and their new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z From anthrax to tick bites to COVID, even a bioweapon like a plague, the Wellness Company medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, antiparasitics on hand to make sure you and your family are safe from whatever the globalists throw at us next. Go to www.twc.health slash Carson. Again, twc.health slash Carson today and order. That's TWC Health slash Carson and use the promo code Carson to save 10%. Carson Show. You're listening to the Rob Carson Show. I'm Amber Duke in for Rob Carson this lovely Thursday afternoon. Thank you so much for tuning in. I want to go to a caller. We have Tom on the line in Owings Mills. We were talking about this Tavistock clinic in the UK. The NHS is supposed to shut it down, but apparently they have decided to delay that decision pending creating new gender clinics for children as young as three years old. Tom, good afternoon. How are you? Yeah, there was an interesting debate on this subject uh, on that station that's the the font of all wisdom C-SPAN, and the proposition for debate was, should U.S. taxpayer funding be provided for transgender surgery on children? And very, very shortly in the debate, both sides stipulated the two facts. One, no transgender operation has ever been successful in permanently transitioning someone from one gender to the other. And the second fact that both sides agreed on was that the rate of suicide among children who nevertheless go through the procedure is 19 times higher than the general uh, population. Now, you would think at this point that the judges would hold up their hands and a stop gesture, throw down the royal order and say, hey, I don't think we need to debate this any further. Both sides agree to that. I think we know the answer to debate. No, no, C-SPAN let it go on as if there were going to be other facts that would come out that would decide the issue. You're exactly right. And I'm actually I'm actually impressed that they got that far, though, on C-SPAN, that they were able to acknowledge the harm that this does to kids, because you will hear constantly this emotional blackmail from the left that if you don't trans the kids who have gender dysphoria or even who express an interest in things that are typically associated with the opposite sex, that you are going to be responsible for that kid committing suicide. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah, they're more, they're 19 times more likely probably to commit suicide than they would otherwise be. So that that is a supreme irony. Yes, it's it's completely bogus. But Thank you for the call, Tom. They let the debate go on at that point. I mean, yeah. what more do you need to know? I know that really should be the end of the and conversation. That agreed. It wasn't like one side was maintaining that you know those two, and the other side was debating. It. Both sides agreed to those two facts, and yet they acted as if well, that wasn't enough to decide the issue. Well, I can't say I'm surprised, unfortunately, um, as we know. And we'll we'll talk with Curtis Hawk about this coming up at 135 about 
the media bias that has captured this country and and he'll walk us through some of the biggest moments of the year because there have been some insanely crazy things said by members of the media this year. These are supposed to be our informed individuals that are, you know, guiding the American public to the truth. And, um, and, and yet so many of them are, are just as brainwashed as the rest of the radical progressive left, which is also trying to prevent you now from voting for who you want to vote for. There's a concerted effort across the country to try to remove President Donald Trump from even being on the ballot for Republican primary voters. As they head to the polls coming up here in the next month or two, Colorado, its Supreme Court, has already ruled that Trump will not appear on the ballot because he supposedly participated and incited an insurrection. I don't know how the Supreme Court reached this conclusion, but that is indeed what they ruled. They have stayed the decision until January pending a U.S. Supreme Court ruling. And I think most people agree that the U.S. Supreme Court, which has a conservative majority now, thanks to Trump himself, will probably overturn this decision. In fact, Charles Lipson over at The Spectator writes, the Supreme Court will almost certainly rule there are no such prohibitions against Donald Trump remaining on the ballot. Uh, Remember, an aggressive special counsel, Jack Smith, conducted a thorough investigation and never charged Trump with insurrection, yet a state Supreme Court is now keeping him off the ballot primarily for a crime he was not charged with or convicted of. And I think that's the primary problem with this decision is that Trump has has never been convicted of anything even close to what the Colorado Supreme Court says is disqualifying. So they have sort of unilaterally decided with not all of the information, clearly in a very biased manner, to exclude voters from choosing who they want to represent them um, based on this totally made up charge that even Jack Smith, who I doubt anyone would, would say is some objective, fair actor, um, said that Trump could not be charged with. And David Brooks, who is the sort of infamous, quote unquote, conservative New York Times columnist, even admitted that this type of decision, if it were to continue around the country, if the U.S. Supreme Court does not overturn this, would cause the country to explode. And he points out a very important aspect of this Colorado decision, which is that it was made entirely by the Ivy League majority on the court. All of the justices who decided to remove Trump from the ballot were Ivy League educated. The Ivy League used to be a place that you wanted to send your kids because it was this show of educational excellence of the ability to be a part of this amazing network of other uh, well-educated, intelligent, wise individuals. And clearly now the Ivy League is the epicenter for left-wing indoctrination and has been graduating these judges who go on to participate in this progressive jurisprudence that for the past, let's say, five or six decades has been used intentionally to unwind the Constitution and act like there are things within the Constitution that don't exist there. They basically write in their their own ideas of policy into the Constitution where they don't exist as a means of undoing everything that we hold dear in this country. Uh, David Brooks said that there would be an uprising 
if there are a series of judges with Ivy League law degrees who come in and say, sorry, we're taking your guy off the ballot, I think he's 100 percent correct. And of course, that is this decision is being appealed in addition to Trump appealing the decision himself. Um, his uh, former lawyer, Jay Sekulow, will also try to appeal this Colorado decision. But the Michigan Supreme Court recently ruled to keep Trump on the ballot, which was a good development. But the next fight, which people are keeping their eye on, is going to be in Maine. Maine is currently in the process of deciding whether or not Trump will appear there. And what's rather concerning about what's happening in Maine is that you don't even have a court that is deciding the person who is deciding, that's right, a single person, is the Secretary of State. And in Maine, the Secretary of State is a left-wing woman named Shenna Bellows. She's expected to rule on the issue in the next week or so. Not only is she a former ACLU executive, but she also has worked for pro-same-sex marriage groups. She's worked for voting rights groups, and we all know that voting rights is a euphemism for allowing anyone to vote, even if they're not eligible, and allowing systems that enable voter fraud. She's worked for pro-choice groups and previously served as a Democratic state senator. So to be blunt, she's not a fan of the former president. She's not a fan of Trump. And yet she is going to have the unilateral authority to make a decision about whether or not he appears on the primary ballot. And in fact, uh, Donald Trump has actually written a letter to Shenna Bellows asking her to recuse herself, disqualify her case herself from this case because of some tweets that she has sent talking about January 6th and blaming Trump for inciting an insurrection. Um, Some of these tweets say things like the January 6th insurrection was an unlawful attempt to overthrow the results of a free and fair election. Today, 57 senators, including King and Collins, found Trump guilty. That's short of impeachment, but nevertheless an indictment. The insurrectionists failed and democracy prevailed. She also wrote, one year after the violent insurrection, it's important to do all we can to safeguard our elections. So clearly not exactly an objective arbiter of justice there. And it's truly amazing the massive hypocrisy from these people who claim to be the defenders of democracy. Even in Shenna Bellow's tweets right there, you hear her talking about how the January 6th insurrection was an attack on democracy. But how is it not an attack on democracy to tell a voter that they are not allowed to cast their ballot for their preferred candidate because a bunch of people in robes have unilaterally decided that they don't get to do that, or a secretary of state has decided that they don't get to do that. The left is constantly talking about dangers to democracy, and yet they are the ones constantly attacking it with all of their their policy decisions and the way that they're trying to reshape the judiciary. I also think it's just a bad strategy on their part, for one, because obviously this creates a massive backlash from Trump supporters, from the Republican base, because they see this for the injustice that it is. But even from just a polling perspective, there was a recent poll, um, I believe it was it was Bloomberg, and in this poll, they asked voters about all of their top issues as they head into the 2024 presidential election. And in addition to the obvious ones like economy, inflation, immigration, abortion, there was democracy up there. The voters were asked what 
you know, if, if democracy was one of their top issues. And a lot of them said that it was. And I don't really know if that's a, a super useful question to even ask a voter, because if you say uh, democracy is my top issue, what does that really mean? Do you mean democracy in the way the left talks about it, meaning you think Trump's a threat to democracy and you want to defend it? Uh, at least that's the language that they use. Or are you talking about it in a more traditional patriotic manner where you think that everyone deserves to have their voice heard and and you want to have um, a f- free and fair elections in the sense that you want voter security as opposed to voter fraud. They don't really clarify that, but nonetheless, democracy is a top five issue for voters. But even on the issue of democracy, you see that Joe Biden only has about a three or four percentage point advantage over President Donald Trump on the issue of democracy. So why on earth would Democrats spend all of this time painting Trump as a dictator, as an authoritarian, as this major threat to democracy, when this is not an issue that gives Biden really any advantage at all. So even just from a strategic standpoint, from whoever the consultants and advisors are to the Democratic Party, this whole strategy makes absolutely zero sense. And then to double down on it and run it through the courts to the point that the man is removed from the ballot and voters can't even cast a vote for him is just pure insanity. But that is what we see repeatedly from the Democratic Party. And unfortunately, on the other side, you see the Republican Party repeatedly fail to capitalize on the repeated mistakes from the left of their repeated alienation of voters. Republicans uh, are, are amazing at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. You're listening to The Rob Carson Show. I'm Amber Duke. We'll be right back. This is Amber Duke. In for Rob Carson today on The Rob Carson Show. If you're enjoying the program, you can check out more of my work over at The Spectator. I'm the Washington editor there. And maybe check out my book. It's called The Snowflakes Revolt, How Woke Millennials Hijacked American Media. If you're interested at all in how the media got as biased as it is, uh, hopefully my book can serve as a decent guide. And we'll also talk to Curtis Houck at 135 about the biggest media meltdowns of the year. He's giving out the Brian Stelter Award for worst quotes, so that should be good fun. Uh, unfortunately, a, a tragic story we, we have to mention on, on this program is there was a, a Christmas massacre in Nigeria, a mass murder of Christians by Muslims in that country. They believe the death toll is somewhere between 160 and 220 villages were attacked In some cases, people were murdered in churches where they had gathered to celebrate Christmas. Um, I mean, they they really went after women, children, church pastors, um, a, a really tragic, horrible, targeted attack. And no one is really talking about it in the United States. There are no protests going on in New York City or Los Angeles. No one is shutting down airports. No one is threatening to go shut down the New Year's Eve ball drop in New York City. There's a lot of silence. And uh, unfortunately, it seems like 
in this country now, you are only allowed to speak out about events that are viewed within the lens of a oppressed and oppressor as the left sees it. So because Palestinian people are brown, they are the ultimate oppressed class. They deserve protests and riots and uh, the money needs to be stopped. Uh, from being sent to Israel from the United States. If you are a member of Black Lives Matter, if you are a black person in America, anything that happens to you is not your fault. You're a total victim. You are the oppressed. The white people are the oppressors. And unfortunately, it would seem that the left also believes that Muslims are the perpetual victim oppressed class. And if you criticize any of their extremist ideology, the type of extremist ideology that leads them to massacre these Christians um, on this Christmas Day attack, then uh, you're, you're just not allowed to talk about that. You're not allowed to mention that, unfortunately, there is still very much an extremist portion of Islam that many people around the world adhere to, and it causes them to uh, perpetuate all kinds of violence and, and horrific behavior. Um, there's a, a friend of mine, her name's Azra Nomani. You might be familiar with her. She is a Muslim reformer who has talked about some of this ideology for quite some time and has basically been ex- excommunicated from the Muslim community because of it. Um, because again, you're, you're not allowed to talk about it. Um, they are the oppressed class and they are the victims and you can never suggest that they are the aggressor in any situation. Um, This type of ideology has become so prevalent among young people. It's another one of the things I talk about conflicts revolt is how the education system has led young people to believe that there is a constant struggle between the marginalized victims and the powerful oppressors, but they get wrong which group is the oppressed and which group is the powerful. They seem to think that it's all about identity as to whether or not you could possibly be marginalized. The only people who are part of that victim group are people who have a minority skin color, are a minority gender, or who have a minority sexual orientation. I mean, this is, uh, if we go back to the transgender issue, right? They always claim that the transgender people are the victims who will commit suicide if you don't affirm their identity. And yet they seem to be one of the most powerful classes in the country because they cannot be criticized. You will lose your job. You can be excommunicated from society. You can be debanked if you criticize them. The same is true of Muslims to the point that three in 10 young people, according to a new Daily Mail poll, Um, have a positive view of Osama bin Laden, the terrorist who orchestrated the 9-11 attacks that killed uh, 2,900-plus innocent Americans. Um, There was a TikTok trend recently where people were talking about how they found out that everything they learned about 9-11 was wrong and that Osama bin Laden was really just this oppressed guy trying to fight back on behalf of the Palestinian population and save them from the horrible Americans and Israelis. And it's revisionist history at its very core um, for a lot of reasons, not least of which the fact that Osama bin Laden was from a very privileged, rich family in Saudi Arabia, and it was his own actions that led to him being exiled from that country. He actually received the support of the United States when he was affiliated 
with the Mujahideens, um, but they don't want to hear that. They just believe that because Osama bin Laden is a brown Muslim guy, that he must have been suffering and he must have been oppressed. And so what he did on September 11th was somehow justified. I mean, this is really the type of brain worms that young people have in this country. It is beyond disturbing to see the way that this has taken root. And I think, again, this is the reason why you don't hear much about this mass murder on Christmas Day of somewhere between 160 and 200 Christians in Nigeria by the Muslim population. Um, the pictures that have been floating around of this are just unbelievable to see. It's it's truly a devastating thing. And, and I hope we see more action on this. I hope we see more people talking about it because we have to understand that this is the type of threat that we are facing potentially in this country if we don't speak out. We'll be back with more on The Rob Carson Show. Welcome back to The Rob Carson Show. I'm your host, Amber Duke, and I'm so excited to be joined by my friend Curtis Houck on the Newsmax Hotline. He is the managing editor of Newsbusters. You might know them as the media's media bias experts. And every year they do these amazing roundups of the worst media moments of the entire year. And so Curtis is here to join us to help break that down. Curtis, thanks so much for being on the Newsmax Hotline today. No problem. Absolutely. So you all have this amazing award that you've dreamed up. It's called the Brian Stelter Memorial Award for Worst Quote of the Year. Rest in peace to reliable sources, that old CNN show. But I want to play this montage that you all put together of the nominees for this award, and then we can talk about who you think the winner is. This is cut six. He will do. He will get away with. He will imprison. He will execute whoever he's allowed to imprison, execute, uh, 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 drive from the country. Just look at his past. It's not really hard to read. Only Again, the only thing that stood between him and the destruction of American democracy was the federal judiciary. So that is uh, Joe Scarborough, and I, I think, unfortunately, that's the only clip we have, Curtis, but lo and behold, he is the winner. That's him talking about none other than President Donald Trump. Right, and the one thing uh, that I can paint for uh, the radio audience here is, as he was saying this, you know, his wife, Mika Brzezinski, was sitting there very sternly with her head slightly turned looking into the camera, and their other panelist was none other than race hustler Al Sharpton staring very pensively into the camera like he was saying something very serious and very profound when really this is just mad libs for liberals i mean amber i mean you've known this and seen this covering the media for years as well that morning joe is the go-to show for the liberal elites inside the dc beltway and it fulfills you know all of their fan fiction fantasies including donald trump going around and somehow being able to execute people um, and I, I think you can't get any more hyperbolic than that uh, to suggest that Donald Trump, if reelected, will be going out and killing people himself, um, which is pretty farcical. But, yes, that is the worst that we were able to come up with. And we had all kinds of runner runner up. And the one that I just want to highlight is our first runner up, Jason Johnson, who uh, 
people may be familiar with in in Maryland. He was a professor at Morgan State for a while. He said that there's been no more destructive force in American jurisprudence than Clarence Thomas's wife. And they called that, he says that they are the Voltron of evil, which is a throwback <laughs> to a comic from years back. I, and that, I think, was one of the main media stories this year, too, Amber, which is the media's assault on Clarence Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, and just overall, a continued push to be, become incredibly hyperbolic. Well, they say you and I in conservative media are the ones who feed off of people's fears. That's right. And and that's important to point out that this attack on uh, sorry, Clarence Thomas was very much started by the media and specifically by ProPublica, which had run this series of what they called investigative reports, talking about some of the trips that Clarence Thomas had gone on with his friend Harlan Crow. Of course, what they failed to mention is that pretty much every liberal justice who has appeared on that court has engaged in similar behavior and that it was by no means against any of the ethical rules that were in place for Supreme Court justices. Right. And I think looking overall at the media this year, while they would say, you know, the stelters of the world would say that that was one of the biggest achievements of the liberal media this year, ProPublica's work. But, you know, I would say that ProPublica is not surprisingly funded by liberal donors, far left groups, uh, hell-bent on, you know, expanding the court, reforming the court, as they like to tell us. Um, and what's funny was they recently put together that database where they could see, where people could see trips and gifts that other justices have received. But a very basic search of its own database would show, and did show, as you pointed out, that some of the liberal justices, in particular Sonia Sotomayor, have taken on way more uh, gifts and other goodies than Clarence Thomas. So their own database, you know, runs counter to their own reporting and their own narratives. Um, So, you know, kind of without Donald Trump, you know, full time on the scene or as much as they tried to suppress him this year, they made Clarence Thomas the main story in liberal Twitter and liberal fantasy lands on MSNBC and CNN. But as we've seen, all of that has just failed. Um, And anybody who's familiar with Justice Thomas knows that, you know, from the very beginning of his career and his humble beginnings, that he's not going to be intimidated by any of this. Exactly. And and also the idea that his ideology was somehow affected by these gifts uh, when he's been uh, unbelievably consistent throughout his legal career is quite hilarious. I also wanted to read this quote from Jason Johnson on a different issue, which is equally insane, which is he says that to politicians like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, black people being killed is just the cost of doing American business. And I think our listeners will understand, obviously, why that's crazy. But just from a more general standpoint of, I think, what the media's strategy with a lot of these statements are, as you pointed out, they accuse you know, uh, conservative media and Republicans of fear-mongering. But this type of language is the type of language that I think justifies the violent riots that BLM was involved in in 2020. They really set up this um, sort of dichotomy of um, individuals who commit violence are actually engaging in self-defense against this murderous system. Right, and this goes back to COVID, where you had CNN and MSNBC directly accusing You know, governors like Governor DeSantis, Governor Kemp, Governor Reynolds, uh, among others, of being pro-murder, you know, that somehow they get off and that they are somehow 
you know, thrilled with the idea of their own citizens dying. Um, and, you know, that's why Joy Reid, we have an entire, we did an entire category in our worst quotes of the year for Joy Reid because people like her are just so um, odious, you know, and poisonous to our body politic that we have to really grapple with the fact that even if it's a small audience, that people still listen to this. The ratings are in the toilet, but you know, still over a million people to tune into some of these shows on MSNBC and far more watch them on YouTube or follow Joy Reid on TikTok or other social media platforms and follow Jason Johnson because, you know, he's got the cool comic books in the background and he kind of seems easy, you know, he's a incendiary college professor. But at the end of the day, these people, they have an impact and they set the tone. So all you, you know, again, the double standard here in the media this year, which is, you know, conservative media really drives the Republican Party and is responsible for dangerous Republican rhetoric. But what I always say is the left, you look at the left, the, le- the liberal media drive how the Democratic Party acts, creating no incentive for them to compromise, because if not, they live in fear of their own base, which, as we've seen over recent years, is pretty rabid. Yeah, and I think it goes the other direction, too, in the sense that the liberal media wants access to Democratic politicians and officials and and is more than willing to mm-hmm. accept whatever the party line may be so that they can continue to enjoy the good graces of, of being um, an extension of the left. And these people that you're talking about, Joy Reid and, and Jason Johnson and others like them on MSNBC, repeatedly talk about the biggest news stories through the prism of race, except when it's inconvenient. There was this attack uh, over Christmas where two teen girls were stabbed in New York's Grand Central Station by a black man who was yelling quite loudly about how much he hated white people. But a CBS News article says that the attack was, quote, apparently random. I'm flummoxed. Curtis. Yeah, right. That reminded me the other day when that story came out from CBS of the fact that, uh, you know, whenever we saw those nice attacks uh, over in Europe by Islamists uh, pledging allegiance to ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab or the truck uh, incident in Nice where uh, radical Islamists took a kind of tractor-trailer truck and just drove down the main promenade mowing people down. You know, the, a lot of the news articles was like truck kills or like knife, you know, stabbing. <laughs> right. People. Truck attack. And it, it's trucks are like autonomous, you know, at this point. Uh, I know we're headed towards autonomous vehicles, but like I didn't know that we were already there in like 20, you know, 15, 2016, uh, when you and I first started getting on the scene and covering the media. But um they always leave out those key details. And again, this goes back to the most basic fundamental principles of journalism, which is the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Mm-hmm. And, and this, this is where it shouldn't even be, you know, part seen as partisan, like a conservative versus liberal thing, where when you're leaving out basic facts about an attack or literally anything, whether it's a press conference or cr- any sort of crime or trial, you're leaving out key details, you're just... You know, not only are you, it's a poorly written story by leaving out basic facts, you're not doing the reader any justice. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, you mentioned we sort of kind of came up on the media scene in 2015, 2016. That was when we first met each other, just 
covering all of this horrific cable news nonsense on a daily basis. But um, around that time, there was also some reporting that you and I did on Chris Matthews, who had been accused of sexual harassment back in the 90s at MSNBC. He ended up settling with uh, a woman that worked on his show in 1999. And then subsequently, a few years later, was accused again by a GQ writer of engaging in this toxic um, misogynistic workplace. He was ultimately fired from the network or resigned, whatever they want to call it. But he was back on MSNBC. And I immediately thought of you when he made this appearance because it was like nobody even said anything about the fact that this guy had previously been let go by the network for his misbehavior and yet is somehow just brought back on as a guest like nothing happened. Right. And of course, he was in rare form. He joined Morning Joe and he talked about the rural rage uh, at liberal elites being came to terrorist groups in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, going after the U.S. military. Um, so clearly some time away uh, and, you know, being, I guess, disowned by his own side and thrown overboard. Uh, really didn't do anything to change his opinion or how he feels about certain things. They brought him out from time to time. They'll bring him out on MSNBC um, when he had his memoir uh, out in 2021, early, late May, early June. He did some interviews. Joy Reid brought him back on the show. Um, and he went on The View as well, and he talked about how voter laws are anti-democratic. So clearly nothing has changed for this guy. And the media see no problem with trying to rehabilitate their own. We see what's going on in New York with Andrew Cuomo, mm-hmm, flirting with mm-hmm. the idea of running for mayor of New York City, and Chris Cuomo, you know, turning up at News Nation, and otherwise pretty good network, in my opinion, of just right down the middle of news, that they brought him on, and he talks about being a free agent, you know. Um, all this sort of hypocrisy is, you know, further proof of why people shouldn't trust them. And when they lecture us about, you know, believe all women or that we need to think a certain way or feel a certain way about our democracy, we should be reminded that we also all have First Amendment rights and we have First Amendment right to say you suck. <laughs> That's right. I mean, to them, I, I really do think that it's just all about power and controlling um, whatever the predominant political narrative is at the time. That's Curtis Hauk. Managing Editor of Newsbusters on the Newsmax Hotline. Curtis, thanks again for joining us. No problem, Amber. Take care. You too. All right. We'll be back with more coming up next on The Rob Carson Show. Happy Thursday. You're listening to The Rob Carson Show. I'm Amber Duke in for Rob this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. There's been quite a few warning signs being uh, sent out across the United States recently about the potential for a violent attack, uh, one on quite a large scale, a 9-11 type event happening in 2024. And it's not hard to see why with the situation at the southern border, the migrant crisis, thousands of people pouring in every single day with little to no vetting. You also have these riots and and protests taking place in major cities. Crime is up. Things feel a little bit out of control right now in many places around the country. And Catherine Herridge, a former Fox News reporter who now works for CBS, was on Face the Nation recently, and she warned that there would be a black swan event 
in the coming year. Let's take a listen to her. This is cut seven. Well, mine's a little dark. I just feel a lot of concern that 2024 may be the year of a black swan event. This is a national security event with high impact that's very hard to predict. Um, there are a number of cons uh, concerns that I have that factor into that. And not only this uh, sort of enduring heightened threat level that we're facing, uh, the wars in Israel, also Ukraine. And we're so divided in this country in ways that we haven't seen before. And I think that just creates fertile ground for our adversaries like North Korea, China and Iran. And that's what uh, concerns me most. She mentioned this um, raised threat level, and this is something that FBI Director Christopher Wray, whatever you think of him, recently warned Congress of during some testimony saying that the terror uh, threat level in the United States is incredibly elevated right now, in part because of the uh, Hamas terror attacks on Israel and the subsequent war between Israel and Palestine and Hamas and and also the situation at the southern border, where, again, we have basically no security down there. And there was a an audio clip that um, really, for whatever reason, didn't get much attention from earlier this month. But it is from an imam in Michigan. And when you hear this guy talking about jihad and and what Muslims should believe and what they should advocate for, you would think that he is coming from a cave in Afghanistan. I mean, I'm not even kidding you. He almost sounds like a member of the Taliban, um, but he lives in Michigan. He is exercising uh, in Michigan. Um, I mean, you just have to hear this to believe this. Cut eight. Yes, there's holy war in Islam. It's jihad. This may be a surprise to many who grew up in the West, especially those who were born or grew up post 9-11 because of the growing number of the munafiqeen who are spreading the American Zionist Islam. And it has nothing to do with Islam. That version of Islam is an Islam that suits the enemies. The one who's been spreading that there's no holy war in Islam has been defecating zandaqa out of his mouth for the past 20 years, downplaying the legislation of Allah and the hudud. The Muslims in the West, especially the youth in the West, especially the youth in America, need to wake up. The current events are a wake-up call for Muslims to start normalizing, mentioning jihad's proper meaning and putting it back into their vocabulary. Jihad must be a common, normal term on the tongues and on your social media and in the masajid and elsewhere. It's time the mothers nurse their infants with the love of jihad and the ambition of wanting to become a mujahid and a shaheed. Uh, I don't know how you plan on protecting yourself and your family. If you need to stock up on food, water, ammunition, firearms, whatever you need to do, that combined with the recent Obama-produced movie about terror attacks on our power grid Leaves me feeling a little bit nervous, I'll be honest. We'll be back with more of The Rob Carson Show after this. Welcome back to The Rob Carson Show. I'm Amber Duke. Thank you all so much for tuning in on this Thursday around the holidays, just a few days after Christmas. I hope everyone has a happy new year. I'm not doing resolutions this year. I've decided 
to give up on that whole thing. But my one resolution, if I had any, was that I was not going to force you all to listen to a debate over the conservative calendar for the ultra right beer today because that discourse i think is all played out on twitter i didn't need to subject you all to that so at the very least i hope that you enjoyed that i didn't make you listen to my very ancient views about sexual morality and posing for calendars as a married woman you're all welcome very much um check out my work amber duke at the spectator.com thanks so much and we'll see you next time on wcbm and newsmax radio